Hello, everyone. I'm Al Daldegan, creator and producer of the Leaders, Innovators, and Big Ideas podcast, supported by Rainforest Alberta. This podcast showcases the people who are working to improve Alberta's innovation ecosystem. Our sponsor for this episode is UFA Cooperative. When the business of agriculture can't stop, UFA helps you get it done. There are no days off, and when every second counts, UFA has what you need, when and where you need it. Buy online and pick up in store, now available. Visit ufa.com and get what you need, all from the palm of your glove. This episode is hosted by Janae Meiser. Janae Meiser is a leader, she is a curious observer, and she is the Director of Innovation at UFA Cooperative Limited, an Alberta-based farming cooperative that has been weaved into the fabric of Alberta for over a century. Janae is discovering technology that will enable the farm of the future focused on egg technology that creates value for Alberta producers. I'll hand the mic over to Janae now as she sits down with Spencer Kerber. Take it away, Janae. So good day and welcome. I'm your host, Janae Meiser, and today I am joined by Spencer Kerber, the founder of Bessie, the API connecting farmers to local eaters. Hey, it's Spencer. Uh, thanks, Janae. And I'm happy to be here with Rainforest. Before we get started, I want to thank you in advance for your time that you're sharing. I know as, a, as an entrepreneur and a, and a startup, your, your time is valuable. Um, so thank you again for sharing it with me and let's get started. Of course. I, I will say, though, I don't think my time is, is worth more than anyone listening to this or, or yours. So I'm just happy to be here. Well, good point and, and thank you. Um, so... Uh, Spencer, tell me a bit about about you. Tell us a bit about your journey. Well, I, I will say I'm definitely not one of the classic selling lemonade as a 10-year-old type of entrepreneurs that always thought I was going to be an entrepreneur. It just kind of happened out of nowhere. I don't know. That Maybe that makes me a little bit weird. I wouldn't say weird. Um, it happened out of nowhere. Um, uh, were there experiences in your past um, that led to, to today? Yeah, I think maybe just looking at the curiosity of being younger, I always was digging deep into the things that I was really passionate about. And for a lot of my life, that was, I guess, music blogs and LimeWire and torrenting and finding new music from artists that I didn't know about before. And that type of curiosity was amazing, but um, eventually habits and and passions change. And weirdly enough, I got really into food and just how we, I guess, coordinate getting food from one place to another. It just made me really interested as a consumer and just someone that loved to eat. And it turned out that I could actually make that my, my day job, which was like the coolest thing ever. So before uh, becoming an entrepreneur and, uh, and, bringing your dreams and and your curiosity to life. What, what did you do before? Tell me a bit about, you know, growing up, um, what you went to school for, any of the things that you've learned that help kind of mold who you are today. Totally. Well, I'm from Calgary. I went to U of C as a mechanical engineer and a petroleum engineer um, for an undergrad. And to be honest, I just went to school because I 
did well at math in high school and stuff. And so I didn't necessarily have the career mentorship or the guidance to know what options existed to, I guess, like work in a career and then how to get there. And so I've kind of just meandered my way into, I guess, a like a work life and then trying to find out what is actually interesting to me along the way. And so I guess if you're looking at my resume, it would be engineer through school, uh, worked across Alberta with a couple different oil companies, and then moved into consulting. I had a couple friends that kind of showed me what consulting could be and made me really excited about it. And I ended up graduating, um, went, worked in consulting for three years, a little bit in sustainability, a lot in um, industrial process optimization. But at the end of the day, these like industrial clients and whether it was consulting or engineering, it still wasn't in something that made me really happy. Like I didn't wake up at 5 a.m. to get on a work bus to go to a job site and and just like have a smile on my face. I don't know if anyone does, but it just was, wasn't right for me. And so trying to find ways to get closer and closer to the things that I truly was passionate about and would spend my spare time or my friends and family time doing, that was something that I guess it for me, it just felt like I should be doing this for my job. And I never would have guessed that I would have been able to do it for my own company. Um, and I'm still like kind of checking myself to make sure that that's real. But I definitely wanted to move into food and move into logistics and find something I could like wake up and just be excited to go work on because it, it just felt natural. What, what an amazing journey and an amazing story from mechanical engineer, petroleum engineer into consulting. And I can almost visualize jumping on the bus, the, the frown on your face um, to go out and, um, and really trying to find uh, a, a way to, to connect to your dreams and, and your passion. What an exciting story. And, and so tell us a bit more about how you were able to turn that, um, that, that dream and reality into a reality and you, through your passion for food. Yeah, um, I, I was, I'm an obstinate and stubborn person in some aspects, maybe a lot of aspects. And one thing that I, I guess, like committed my friends to doing was these like potluck gatherings where I would set a theme, whether it would be like, I guess like tacos night, or the first one was actually uh, Korean army soup or like Buddha jjigae, but it would have a theme. And instead of everyone cooking at home, prepping something and bringing it to share, I actually had people show up to my house, go grocery shopping with me, get all of the ingredients, come back to my house, individually start and together start building recipe from scratch of something that most of us had probably never done before. And then eventually getting to eat it. And I mean, this uh, for a bunch of amateur to non-existent chefs was a four to seven hour process and really painful, but it was also amazingly fun because it was, uh, it started with maybe five people, the, biggest one that I hosted was I think 16 or 17 people in a single bedroom apartment, just prepping a meal together and eating it together. And that type of like sharing camaraderie challenge, 
um, technical skill for actually getting some like food from raw to something delicious. It was so much fun, but it just like really started getting the ball rolling for me on, wow, this type of community and this type of enjoyment around food is something that can be more attainable. It doesn't have to be just like event-based. It can be just within the story of the food that I'm eating. It can be with a single partner or cooking for my parents. These food experiences and the the joy that we get when there's a great plate of food, it doesn't it can be, I guess, like experienced by more people. And that was kind of the passion element. And then where the passion kind of meets pavement was all the hard stuff about finding, I guess, like farm partners and trying to figure out what a food story looks like in Alberta. And does that food story, I guess, change or stay the same when you move to other places as well? Oh, I love your passion and I love your stories and 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 really turning an event um, into an experience, a community. And I really um, have to call out, you know, the food story and the food story of Alberta. And so when did you realize that you were going to take your passion and your experience into a business of your own? Yeah. I mean, this, I'm going to call back to saying that I'm a bit weird in that I never planned to be an entrepreneur. I actually really like having a great boss. Like that's something that I miss. Um, but I, I just uh, I just did it. I mean, I, I was tired of my existing work, not from the people, but more so just from the, the industry. And I decided, you know what? I have the privilege of, of some savings. I could live frugally um, with no income for, for some time. And I do have some safety nets, whether it's like opportunity or, or family or, or what have you. So I'm, I'm going to just give this 100%. And I left my job. Um, most people were kind of like, what? what? You don't even have a website built. You don't have a business ready. You don't have another income. Well, I mean, some of those things, not all of them have kind of like figured themselves out over the past, I guess, two years now. But I, I knew enough and believed in myself that even if the financial success or failure wasn't certain, my personal values and my, I guess, like enjoyment on solving a problem I care about would be fruitful enough that I should just go do it and, and not try and do it in my evenings and, and kind of cheat my employer or cheat myself out of, uh, I guess, like good health. Instead, I, I said, like, look, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to try and do it as best as I can. If I fail, at least I know I will fail in a way that I'm proud of. And, and that's kind of where I made the decision. It wasn't after I got X amount of customers or I had Y amount of business set up or I raised Z amount of money. It was more so just looking and reflecting internally and realizing, you know what, Spencer, like you have the, you, you have like the ability to go and, and work hard on this. And it's okay if you if you fail. It sounds like you took quite the leap of faith and and had the courage and as well as the support ne- network around you in which to help really launch your your idea. And I wouldn't call you weird. Uh, you took a dream, you took a passion, uh, and you acted on it. And so 
you know, when, when you talked about your family, your support network, uh, let's talk a bit about that. You mentioned that you grew up in Calgary. Is your family in Calgary? Is Calgary home? And really about why you choose Alberta? Yeah. I mean, two parts to that, I guess. Like one is, is how did my family help me? And then two, why Alberta? So with the family side, I mean, that's why I'm here. Like my parents are here. Um, My brother actually lives in the same apartment complex as me. And I can go downstairs and see my nephew like anytime, which is, I mean, the the dream for me. I, I get to be the fun uncle, but that type of like close knit family and relationships as time, as, as I get a bit older, I realize that that is something that I want to protect and, and have close as long as possible. So definitely like Alberta and family, they, they go together for me. Um, but from the ways with the business that my family supported me, I, I guess personally don't um, never wanted to take family money and put it into a risky startup just because, and I, this is actually like a very uh, severe problem with startups and venture capital and more in that many businesses, they, they don't, I guess they, they need some capital to get things rolling at the beginning. And not everyone has friends and family that have the ability to, to invest in a startup and should invest in a startup. And so I actually didn't and we won't ever raise money from family just because we want to protect those relationships. And we'd rather, I guess, like work bootstrap and, and be really lean than um, rely on family in a like financial sense. And I say this, like, I, I guess like the second part to this is the family is already investing in the startup through supporting me and my co-founders with, a free lunch here and there, or some extra, I guess, like childcare, or being able to live at home for a month or a couple months. And, and so those are places where family makes a massive difference, even if they're not writing checks or, or sort of supporting the business with connections and, and money, which frankly, like my family doesn't have. Then the second part of the question about why Alberta, uh, I think that is actually getting harder and harder to, I guess, answer, especially with the way that the way of work is, is moving. Um, our team has, because of COVID, uh, been mostly remote. There's certain aspects of food that are incredibly physical. So we definitely still need to be at a warehouse or moving product from A to B. But the way that we coordinate as a team is is remote first and all of our technical work is done apart now. And so the, I guess the need to be in Alberta from like a work or like an advantage perspective is a lot less. And it's more so about making sure that each of our, our, I guess, staff members, our suppliers, our customers are cared for in a unique way that matches where they live. And, And right now that looks like, I guess, some of our team living in Edmonton, some in Calgary, we actually had a new teammate join that was in Lethbridge that was completely remote, but they decided to move to Calgary just to, I guess, like be a bit closer to the action. But this question about why Alberta is, is constantly evolving for me. 
I will say that the support networks have been great. We've really appreciated um, so many different like avenues and, and partnerships and, and friendships that we've built along the way. But it definitely feels like there's a shift. And we, I guess, as a company with our identity being in Alberta is really important. But our opportunity must expand like nationally and, and to other places, not just from a customer base, but also from a talent base. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, some great insights there and things to, you know, reflect on and how the support from your family as well as, you know, what the opportunity Alberta has, but as well, obviously, expanding reach. And you, you made a good point on, you know, with uh, the current pandemic and kind of the the art of, uh, of the possible and the ability to kind of work anywhere and to expand reach across different areas. I want to talk a bit about your team. Um, you mentioned a couple of times in there a, a few of your teammates and how you've uh, onboarded some resources who are moving to the Calgary space. But let's uh, talk about, from a founder perspective, any co-founders. Yeah, I, have, I am blessed to have two awesome co-founders. One is named Shanika, um, and the other is named Alex. We actually knew each other from quite a bit back. So Alex and I actually played peewee football for the Cowboys together when we were like 10. Um, and then Shanika and I met at university. We took different degrees entirely, but just had kind of the same friend groups. And all three of us, I guess, spent a lot of time extracurricular wise at university together but never actually like work together on like a project or startup in in like a meaningful or long-term capacity but we all kind of just i guess later as we became adults knew that hey like this would be something that would be cool to work on together and as like the idea went from an idea to actual customers and more, it just became firmer what and who we wanted to be as a company and building that identity together. So it definitely isn't like me that's built this company. Um, it's been all three of us together making the hard, I guess, decision points and, and value calls along the way that have brought us to where we are today. Oh, that's amazing. And I have to think back your peewee days in football or in university. I'm assuming that the three of you shared some great meals and some great experiences in crafting those meals uh, together. Definitely. I, I will say, though, that um, maturity changes quite a bit. So meals that previously were maybe like pop and chips are now are quite ostentatious. Maybe our tastes have just changed. Oh, amazing. Um, and and your team itself. Talk a little bit about Bessie and, um, and your growing team. Yeah, uh, I guess Bessie's been interesting and we haven't talked about it yet, but we've built this company from, from the ground up, I guess, without that much external capital. We do have um, some support from Andrew Chow, but predominantly we've had to build the company from revenue and from a customer base, which means that our needs as well as our capacity have changed as we grow. Originally, the company was very basic, single supplier, direct to customer, farm to table type of e-commerce business that as we grew operational complexity, suppliers, larger customer base, um, more, uh, I guess, like automations in the 
in, behind the scenes, the identity of the company has shifted. So the needs of our staff have, have shifted as well. What originally was like three founders working together on an idea eventually started to need like different supports. So we brought in, uh, particularly during COVID, we had a lot of colleagues and friends that had been laid off, unfortunately, from different types of service jobs, even um, and, and more. And so we hired a lot of those people just to help us out with distribution. So we, I guess, like paid a lot of our friends that were laid off and, and needing money, really good um, per delivery um, like prices just to keep them working and to take some of that bandwidth off of our backs as, as founders. Um, since then, the, the business like has grown and there's a lot more demands on how we manage inventory, how do we, I guess, coordinate between multiple cities now and, and more. And so we've found two operational leads that kind of handle the stuff that's on the ground at a really granular, uh, granular and like business logic level about how to get product from A to B and how to work with, I guess, like seasonality and problems that arise from supply chain disruption, which is like constantly happening, especially now. And then on the customer side, we've tried to keep the customer as close as possible, but we have, um, I guess, like started hitting a bandwidth there. And so we brought in a marketing um, lead, Tina, who's who's been like rising to the occasion with not just like, definitely not just social media management, but deep customer experience, um, process building, and like truly advanced like customer segmentation and more on how do we get personalized experiences and, and great experiences out to customers. And so the team, I guess, up till then was heavily focused on, on that, I guess, direct to consumer e-commerce and, and like customer experience side of things. And then as we, I guess, like continue to grow and get momentum, we realized that the true value of our business would be very hard for us to roll out to, I guess, like, let's say Montana or somewhere else. Like, it wouldn't be hard for us to find farms to work with and, and more to build the brand. But there's so much, I guess, like operational assets that we would have to recreate. And to do so with, with like bootstrapping or cash flow was going to be really hard. And when we were speaking with all of our suppliers, the thing that they were most impressed at wasn't just that we were a place that could help them sell their product. It was that we were able to sell and coordinate so much of the beef or the chicken or the seafood that they, that they had with only three people uh, with now seven people. Um, that was the part that they found really special. And that's kind of been the latest shift for Bessie is that the software that we built that automates a lot of the business logic for inventory that coordinates with customers with, with personalized care, but with definitely automated chat flows that push people, um, I guess, the right experiences at the right time. And then tying that all together into how does the product still have to get from A to B? Um, that software that we've built there has become, I guess, the most important part of the company. And we started hiring around that to reflect it. So more of the tasks of the existing employees, definitely the founders, but also the devs that we've started hiring has been around building that software into, I guess, like 
a package that our suppliers can use directly. And like essentially what originally was a farm to table D2C experience managed by Bessie can Bessie can kind of step into the background entirely and really realize that dream of of like no middleman of like natural and like honest producers and food brands able to own and um, have direct relationships at a personal level with the people that love their products. Wow, there's uh, there's lots there to unpack and lots of questions. It kind of sounds a bit that you identified uh, a bit of a pivot in in the way you were approaching what the original kind of idea was. And and I I, I loved uh, how you shared that experience and that 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 shift um, and focused. Uh, really on customer centricity and, and focusing on suppliers. And so when we when you when you talk about farm to table and enabling no middleman, talk a bit more about that and kind of the vision there in in engaging and working with your suppliers, uh, partners, farmers, uh, egg producers in the Alberta landscape. Yeah, I think probably the most interesting aspect of this is before running a business and trying to, I guess, work two sides where you have suppliers, you have um, consumers, it didn't really make sense to me why more people didn't go direct. Like if I can go and search up a producer of some hydro flask mug and just ship it myself from from China or, or different, I guess, sources of the raw materials, then why wouldn't everyone else do this? And what kind of came about after a year of, of really working hard on Bessie and, and I guess spinning our tires in some ways was that there is so much value in, I guess, like true uh, customer care because the ability to one, know what's available and, and then actually get it, those pieces are where I guess like for millennia middlemen have made a lot of money but made a lot of value because working with let's say a beef producer they have explicit skill sets that are very specialized to getting a product from i guess like a certain period or potentially from calf of of an animal's life all the way to I, I guess like an animal that's ready for finishing or ready to be, I guess like converted or processed into something that that gets onto the table. But the skill sets to then go and take that product that is like very complex, has I mean more than fifty different SKUs and more, and get that marketed across to the right types of people that are looking for those products is a whole different skill set entirely. And so this type of I guess, like complex market, whether it's for food or it's for, I guess, like a more uh, production-based good, there is a lot of value into, I guess, like finding the right type of customer that's looking for something and then making sure that they have the right information, the care and more to actually get it from one place to another. And that's where I think farm to table in the like traditional or like very storybook sense of the word kind of fails in that um, it doesn't really work after a certain point of scale because certain parts of, I guess, like producing, processing, and then distribution are not going to be able to serve the needs of a customer experience to the best degree 
sure, there's definitely people that are willing to go and um, like choose a whole animal, pay for that whole animal upfront, wait four months for it to actually finish, get processed, get packaged, and then delivered to their home where they need a massive freezer to hold on to that product for for like half a year or a year. Um, but that doesn't describe most people. It suddenly removes a lot of the accessibility that people need in their food. And that's kind of, I guess, like my long answer for saying, look, like farm to table as a concept is amazing, but making those customer experiences great isn't going to happen by just every single producer putting their product on Kijiji. And we're, I guess, really focused on how do we, I guess, like, fulfill those customer experiences and the needs that people expect from like, and I guess like Amazon fresh or an Instacart, but doing it with the producers and empowering the producers so that they're actually participating in this, I, I guess, like customer base instead of like consolidating and creating a new monopoly that just controls and, and masters the entire value chain. What would you say has been your biggest challenge as you've identified, you know, uh, where the opportunity is, and I really, I really have to say, I appreciate the empowering producers. What do you think has been? I know there's not one, but what do you think the biggest challenge has been to overcome? I have a different answer depending on when you ask me. So if this was a year ago or a year and a half ago, I would have said finding, like, getting customer attention, just being able to get in front of people with a clear message and have them buy in. Um, in this like case, literally. But now, as the company has gotten a bit bigger, we have like decent traction on software and with customer base. Um, I think the biggest issue is now like actually funding. It's how do we actually achieve and deliver on these, I guess, like awesome experiences for the customer and for the supplier with limited capital. And that's where I guess like it's going to be different for every single business and every single person. But um, how, I guess, Bessie like, figures out that problem is, is going to be the toughest part for this next year. So there's so many sources for different types of funding. I don't really want to, I guess, get into that. But making sure that we maintain our values, we deliver on our promises, and we're able to actually achieve the opportunity in front of us, those things are are like, they, they must happen. And we're not willing to compromise on one or, I guess, uh, or the other just to get some business or financial success. So what do you see as we talk about challenges and kind of what you're faced with looking forward in the next uh, six months to a year without getting into the challenges that uh, you most recently chatted about, um, but, you know, the awesome experiences for customers and suppliers. What do you see in the next six months to a year for Bessie? Bessie in the next couple months has a lot on her plate, uh, figuratively and literally, but the, the, I guess, excitement that I have for the business is the highest that I've ever had before. We have started our first uh, SaaS pilots with several of our, I guess, partners. And what this means is our software is automating their customers, their inventory and their distribution of their direct-to-customer, I guess, product lines. And shortly, we'll be also supporting some food service and whole, like wholesale clients as well. This 
pilot that we have, particularly with one partner, is actually like extremely strategic in that the Bessie Box brand can operate alongside their brands and share, I guess, obviously the software, but the operational assets as well, which is really powerful for us because the problem that I said before of just like coordinating capital and making sure we have the right attention on our mission, um, this partnership and, and the SaaS contract actually lets Bessie put more and more of our, not just dollars, but our time and attention into that, I guess, like software enablement. And we're going to be able to grow not just the Bessie box, like D2C brand, but also our partners brands with the software. Um, this summer, we'll be starting in Toronto, actually. So we currently operate Edmonton, Calgary, but we're going to have both D2C and our software running in Toronto and hopefully Seattle after that Toronto test goes positively. Uh, along the way, obviously, we're adding more and more um, SaaS, I guess, clients to our, our, I guess, team's plate. So we have a couple more pilots that will be starting this month. And that's kind of, I guess, our six to eight month journey is we're going to, I guess, maintain our Bessie Box customer experience that we've been able to do but extend that way further than we possibly could ourselves. And like, I'm so excited because every single day we check in with the team and there's something new that we've been able to build. And we've been able to roll it out successfully for some partners now. And I'm just like, I'm, I'm so happy with where we're at. And I like, without getting too nerdy into the specifics, it's, it's just like exactly the vision that I was hoping for maybe two years ago when I quit. We're no longer a basic business that sells one product that operates with like a lot of manual, but I guess like difficult labor. We're now taking a lot of those lessons, whether it's through code, whether it's through, it's through processes or partnerships. And we're multiplying our, our impact as, as far as possible. Turning your vision um, into a reality. I really love what you were sharing there. And it's so exciting to see and hear you talk about growth and just the, the passion that you have in this space. Personally, I do have to say, as a customer of Bessie, it is a, um, an amazing customer experience. So that would be the feedback that I would give to you is I um, really see the customer centricity in the Bessie product. And, and then I'll uh, take a minute uh, just to thank you for your time. And I really want to give you the final last words if there's anything that we missed or didn't touch on. And uh, uh, whether it's about the product or your team or your partners, I am super excited to see you guys grow. And I'm really excited to share your story and help share your story in the Alberta landscape and the, the journey that you went on. So thank you for the time and sharing your experience with me. So I'll pass it over to you for any any last words and or or anything around where people can learn more about Bessie. Um, I'm sure there's customers and advisors and more that are listening to this podcast out of the rainforest community. Um, I'm so thankful for you. I'm so happy that Bessie has been able to be a part of some of those food experiences. But I have to bring it back to to myself in a way in that. Yes, I'm still cooking. I, I think one of the most happy and 
like amazing things that I've realized with this last year is the joy from putting some effort with my hands into some food and being able to, to feed some friends or family. And so I think that's one of my favorite memories this year is actually cooking um, with my partner and, and feeding their parents. And obviously in a safe way with COVID and more, but I think it, these discussions about big opportunities and scaling businesses, they, they don't mean as much as that family and the people that are closest to you. So I hope everyone has the opportunity to go get some good food, either from a restaurant or from a farm or, or wherever, and make sure that you're putting that joy and, and love back into the people that you live with and, and, and just love. So thanks. If you haven't already, visit rainforestab.ca and sign the Rainforest Social Contract. Become part of the inclusive, silo-busting, sector-agnostic, all-industry, open-sourced, ego-shrinking, ecosystem-building, entrepreneur-focused, wide-open, social barrier-smashing community known as Rainforest Alberta. This episode brought to you by UFA Cooperative, providing trusted advice, products, services, and solutions to help members and customers get it done. Visit ufa.com for more information. Music for the show was created by Tony Deldegan. Please be sure to share this episode with everyone you know. Also, don't forget to come by and say hi at the next Rainforest event. Let us know what you think of this podcast. If you're interested in being either a host, sponsor, or a guest of the show, send me an email at rainforestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>